monster. Like the mean old dinosaurs all that oil used to be. So for 300 million years, these old dinosaurs have been getting squeezed tighter and tighter. We get it, just use two tires. Then Dad and his friends make a hole in their roof. Yeah. And these mean old dinosaurs can't believe it. Freedom! So they rush to the new hole. Then smack. They run into this stuff called mud. Get in there. That they cram down the straw. Hold the monsters down, we build them a new roof. Hello and welcome to another in our podcast series, uh, Conversations with Sound Artists. Uh, this is a, a co-production of the Dolby Institute and the Soundworks Collection. And I am thrilled to have joining us today, Renee Tondelli, who is nominated. Renee, I, I, this is your first Academy Award nomination? Correct, yeah. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful. Well, Renee uh, is nominated along with Wiley Stateman uh, for Best Achievement in Sound Editing for um, Peter Berg's film, Deepwater Horizon. So Renee, thank you so much for taking some time and, and joining us today to talk about the film. Thanks for asking me. Of course, of course. So this is, I have to ask, this is your first nomination. So what, this must be a whirlwind for you. Like, are you, are you able to enjoy the process at all or is it just totally overwhelming? <laughs> one of my girlfriends said it's like being married four times in one week. You know, you have, because we also got a BAFTA nomination. So there's a, and that's tomorrow. So it's, it's scary and it's exciting, but you know, it was I mean, I remember when I my friend called me up and he said, what are you sleeping for? Get up. You just got nominated. It was like, what? So it's a little, yeah, it's it's amazing, but it's it's also scary. Well, it's it's I'm sure it's overwhelming too. So uh, the um, I, I always like to ask like what how who how did you find out? Who told you? Or did, were were you were you watching online and frantically refreshing? No, not, not at all. I was sound asleep, and Brandon Spencer, who is our dialogue supervisor on the film, called me up and said, "Dude, are you sleeping?" Yeah, get up. So that's how I found out, and I think that was seven thirty or something. So, at first time nomination, very exciting. Um, but you've been working with Wiley for a while, right? So, tell me a little bit about your your background and how you came to be a sound editor. Um, you're, you you've been focused more on on the dialogue and ADR side, if uh, if I'm not mistaken, is that right? Right, correct. Yeah. Well, I, you know, my father was a jazz musician, and I have. 10 brothers and sisters. So we were always, we always had music in the house and we either played an instrument, sang or danced. There was always just this, this vocal quality to our lives, you know? And, um, my father would gig at night and he, in order to see us, what he would do is cause he would leave, you know, we would have dinner, he'd sleep during the day and then we'd, We'd see him for dinner, and then he'd leave. And then at four in the morning, he'd wake up one of us and have you know hot dogs and say, "Come on, there's a great movie on." And so he would take us into watch a movie and eat hot dogs or pizza or whatever he had with him. So I was the one that really loved watching the movies. So he would come to me a lot, and that was sort of the beginning of my love affair with movies. So. Um, 
that's what I did. And then when I, um, when I was in, I grew up in Chicago and then I decided to go to film school and I was also working at a radio station in Chicago, which, um, was exhausting, but, <laughs> but it was great because radio was also the first time I really understood how to tell a story through sound because everything you did in radio was to excite the ears of your audience. And we did it on so many different levels. Like I, it was one of those times where you did it all. You know, I worked in the newsroom and I worked on the air and I worked in production and we would just, uh, develop these sound, you know, sound stories. So that's sort of the beginning of my telling stories through sound. Um, I did want to become it. I did want to be a director and that was sort of my goal. And, um, ironically, when I was in film school, I was also, you know, I was good at editing. So everybody would come to me and I would edit their pictures. And I thought, God, you know, I, <laughs> this isn't what I, what I really want to do is direct. But <laughs> so I actually ended up, um, you know, doing a lot of that. So when I came out here, I, um, was with a friend and I met a friend at Canon Pictures, which at the time, I don't know if you know it, but there was a, this was a studio, it was a non-union studio and you either began your career there or ended it. <laughs> so you had these newbies that didn't know anything and then you had these old bitter guys, you know? Oh my so, goodness. And when I went there, somebody had just quit and he, I was being introduced to the guy and he said, uh, my friend said, well, you know, she worked in radio. She, she could probably do it. And he said, well, yeah, why don't you, can you start right now? And I said, uh, okay. And so that's how I sort of began in at my editing career, you know, was that, was that picture editing or sound editing? No, it was sound. So, so where, where was Canon? Oh, it was on San Vicente. Mm-hmm. And when I started there, it originally was, I guess, on Sunset, but then they moved it. And it was these two Israeli guys. I think um, Menachem was his first name. And he used to just, he was kind of like a Harvey Weinstein. But they were, they were, they were well-known for being, um, I mean, they were very prolific producers in the 1980s, and they made a lot of low-budget kind of independent, but they made a lot of money. Tons. And he would sit in the theater. My first experience with that guy, I walked in and they were mixing something. And he would just sit in the back of the room and say, louder, louder. <laughs> I mean, that was all he would say. And you were, and you just like, he wore suspenders and these really loud plaid pants and he was big and huge. And he was a character. He was a character. And you know, you'd be working on like the river of death, which would have uh, Donald Pleasance and, um, you know, the guy from Man From Uncle, I forgot his yeah. name, but, and you know, they'd have wigs on one and then you go into, you're like, we need you to cut something on this film. And it would be this, they, cause they would shoot like Agatha Christie now, you know, but they would all be in Africa shooting these films one after another. And with the same characters, they would oh just my change gosh. the wigs. So it was really a fun way of kind of learning, you know, about the film, about editing you know, you just did it all again. Talk about talk about getting thrown into the deep end of the pool, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was really uh, it was really fun. So it was, and it was film at the time. Sure, it's a whole. I mean, I you know, in radio, you worked on quarter inch tape and eight track, and but you didn't have film and sprockets, and 
you know, we did, we did 16 millimeter, but not, you know, in film school, but this was like a whole different kind of way. So that was pretty interesting, but that's how I, yeah. yeah. Well, I, dialogue editing, I think it, it's a lot easier digitally than it, than it was on film, wasn't it? Oh my gosh. You have no idea. You would cut something. Like if you had to cut ADR, you would take a word and you had to take like a perf out mm-hmm. at a time. And then mm-hmm. you would write S on it because it would part of, be part of the S, right? And then you would cut and then you'd take two perfs out and you would write M on it, right? And then you would have all these little pieces and sure enough, one of them would be lost and <laughs> <laughs> you'd have to put it back in and it would be, you know, you would talk and it would be all chopped up. It was just, oh my God. And you never knew what it was going to sound like until you put it through your moviola. It was crazy times, but yeah, yeah it was very different. <laughs> Kids these days, they have no idea. Yeah. I know it's so funny. Well, so how did you get started with Wiley, and 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 how did how did this particular movie, Deepwater Horizon, come along for you? Well, Wiley was a sound deluxe. You know, sound deluxe was his baby, and I really was an independent. Um, I worked uh, for some reason. I just found myself working with directors, so a director would hire me on the job, or a picture editor. I never really worked within. Um, uh, you know, an editing company, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So one director that I worked with a lot uh, had a movie. It was called Don't Say a Word, I believe. And he called me up and he said, hey, um, Wiley Statement's interested in doing it. I want you to go down and talk to him. And I went, Wiley? Didn't he just like sell his company and he's like a bajillionaire? He's not so right. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, he, he said, no, no, he really wants to do it. And I said, okay. So I walked, I called up Wiley and we met and we started collaborating pretty much from that point on. I mean, Kate, you know, I still had my clients that I would go off and do films with and etc. But we just really had a great, um, you know, he just really respected what I did and let me do it. And I respected him and we both had, um, you know, a really good working relationship. So yeah, we did a lot of good jobs together, a lot of good films. And, and one, oh, sorry. No, no, I was just about to ask, uh, sorry to interrupt, but do, so do you know, Wiley, I think of as, as a really strong sound designer and effects person. So is that kind of how you guys divide things up? Do you, are you focusing on dialogue and ADR and he's working on the, on the effects side? Well, you know, it has been, it started out that way, but as you know, you, you just, there are not, you know, there's not these two different worlds that don't collide. Sure, right? right. So we're constantly working with each other and, and Wiley, it was interesting with Wiley cause I would, bring him on the aid on the group stage with me and I would start you know we would I always try to do some we both try to bring something novel to the project every time we pick one it's like what's gonna you know what's the story that we're gonna tell on this and um and there were a few times where I would you know record on an uh the group in a scoring stage or outside or we would do different kinds of elements and then he would sometimes take the voices that I did and put them into his. And then I would use some of the the breaths that he would do on the Foley stage and bring them back to me. And, you know, we have, I mean, it's been such a collaboration. It started out like that, but then everything else kind of gets morphed into things. Like when we did Lone Survivor, that's how we were on, P- on Pete Berg's Deepwater, because we did Lone Survivor together. Sure, right. 
Uh-huh. And the part of Lone Survivor, I don't want to spend too much time talking about that film, but it was all about confusion, miscommunication, which ended up basically in the demise of three of the the seals. So we devised all these sort of these radios with using different bits of dialogue and and distorting them and repeating them. And, and that was kind of how, you know, we've done a lot of work like that. So with every process we do that, like on Deepwater Horizon, for instance, um, I went down when they were still filming in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And in Louisiana, it's amazing how how well this movie turned out because they shot the movie in a parking lot um, <laughs> outside of Six Flags, um, which is which, by the way, is close. It still says closed for the for the uh, storm. And it's a really bizarre thing because it's been overrun by the swamp. So you see six flags out there when you're up on the helipad, which they built, they, they did a, they reconstructed a part of the rig Mm -hmm. and they did it in this parking lot. Mm. And so there was that element. That's where the rig, that was where the helipad and the long shot of the rig was. And and was that was that flooded? Was it a tank, or did they? Was well, that yeah, the, was, there was. Was, was the there water was all CG? Tank. Okay, no, it was definitely a tank that surrounded. The water was pretty much CGI CGI too, but they this was built um, in a tank, and the tank was about I don't know eight feet tall. And it, I remember leaning over it and looking at my the producer and talking to her and saying, gosh, you know, how much water did they have to fill? Because of course <laughs> I was coming from California. We were having a water shortage. Yeah. Yeah. She looked at me and said, we don't really have a water problem down here, Renee. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, <laughs> of course. So, you know, there was this, so the tank was there and, and uh, that was one element and the mud room was there, which was another set completely different in another building, but the actual drill shack and the, um, and the bridge and the Bankston bridge, all of those were in a save a lot gross, you know, one of those big stores that are giant sure, that yeah. went empty that went bankrupt or something. And so they built a lot of sets there. All of the um, accommodations were in there and the, and the bridges were shot in there. And then the actual drill shack and, um, floor rig floor was shot in the parking lot outside of that. So basically this is what we had, you know, we had no movable or workable pieces of equipment from an oil rig that just didn't exist. Right. They were all just sets, but I went down there and the thing about Pete Berg that's interesting. And, and I, I like about him is that he, is all about veracity. So everything has to be very real. Um, He hired as extras and many of the speaking characters in the, in the movie, the background characters were all real oil rig workers. Hmm. They, they either work on rigs. They were the, you know, the guy, the banks and captain was really a captain of a ship the helicopter pilot was really a helicopter pilot. They were, um, the Coast Guard was actual real Coast Guard there. So everything they had was real. And I knew that, for instance, the, the, the other thing about the rig is that it's 
26 stories, the real it's, deep it's, water. It's flies. massive. It's massive. It's, it's like huge. Massive, yeah. Right. So, and in that, in that, uh, structure and kind of world because it's it took him like an hour and a half to get out there in a helicopter it's way out in the middle of the ocean with nothing around except for the bankston which is their supply ship that stays right right and so they that ship or the rig it's actually a ship because it's on pontoons and it's constantly being scoped and driven over this nine inch hole (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. Well, that, that was one of the things that, that that surprised me when I watched the film was I, I, you know, I just always thought that these were these these were you know deep sea drilling rigs that were somehow anchored to the sea floor, but that's not they're actually ships, which is amazing. Well, this me. one was yes, yeah. because it's five thousand feet down into the ocean. It's one of the deepest wells ever. You know, down it's like in a uh, a huge mountain, reverse mount, inverse mountain. You know, it's five thousand feet down. So. That in order to do that, you had to have it on pontoons. But in this rig, there is constant movement. It's in and action. Nobody goes to sleep like you sleep in shifts. You know, it's kind of like reminds me of being in radio. You know, there's it always is on. Mm-hmm. So it's not like okay, let's go home. And so in order to and nobody knows what's going on nobody knows where anybody is nobody like you only know what's happening in your own little area interesting right because you can't really see anything so the ship is constantly talking it's constantly having these character developments like each room that we went to we created its own environment because that was the important part about this too is that you needed to create silence and then you know, the appropriate amount when you need to really hear something, but you also had to have that, you know, negative, positive sure. oral capacity going all the time. But so in order to do that, the first thing I did was go down and record all of these guys with, I brought, you know, my recording rig and cause you couldn't use a lot of the production. I mean, we did use, but boy, it was nasty cause there was always a generator and, you know, something going on. But so we went down there and I took all these guys, there were probably 14 or 15 of them, and I brought them to each area of, like to the drill shack and then to the oil rig floor and then out to, you know, outside for, because um, those those things were actually outside sets. So, you know, recording dialogue outside for an outside experience is the best way to go. Sure, I mean, yeah. there's just no way you really can, um, you know, you just don't get that quality. And then we had these guys, I mean, I was down there for four or five days and we had them do exactly what they do on a rig, you know, and at first they were really frozen, but then after a while, they really, not too long, a couple of minutes, got really got into it. So they were, and they were using all of their jargon because that was the other thing when mm-hmm. I started, I was given a Bible on, you know, what actually happened those that day because it was um, a series of events and also a dictionary, which was <laughs> completely different language, right? So these guys had, um, you know, they recorded all these things for us, which was fantastic. And then we had actually had Mike Williams, the character, the real guy that Mark Will- Mark Wahlberg portrays in the film. Mm-hmm. He was there, and also four, three or four guys that were actually on Deepwater Horizon that night. Wow! So they had this. 
uh, it was so provocative to hear their, you know, we reenacted that night too. It was like, okay, now we're all going to start. Now we're running for the lifeboats. Now what happens? And they all, you know, each one of them were doing these um, lines for me that were so chilling because mm. they, they really came back to that moment where you really couldn't get that from a loop group or you couldn't get that kind of quality from, you know, an actor. I mean, you really needed. But I, I hear that. And I, and I think, well, you must have, you know, you must have a, a great talent or you've developed a skill for working with non-professional actors because this is, you know, usually, as you point out, usually when you like stick a microphone in somebody's face, it's not a professional, they just freeze up. So they must mm -hmm. have, they must have, you must have, you must have made them feel <clears throat> um, calm and ready to do this in some way. Yeah, that, and, and, you know, before I did that, I also brought them in individually to do radio calls for me and PAs and mm. helicopter, you know, PAs back and forth. So they were already familiar with me and what, uh, you know, and I, I do try to make, I mean, to me, I find, you know, dealing with any actor or non-actor, the most important thing to do is to make them feel comfortable. And that's when they're going to be the best, you know, sure. you never criticize them or anything. So it, it's, um, it's one of the tricky parts of doing dialogue. I mean, when you're working with actors and a director and both of them have different opinions of what they want, you kind of have to be that. And you're the person in the middle. Yeah. You have to be Solomon. So you have to explain it to the actor in a way where he feels like he's getting what he wants, but I know the director is getting what he wants. So there's a win-win, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of psychology to it, but with these guys, it wasn't, they were very, you know, I was really appreciative of them because I knew what I was getting. It was gold, you know? So we came back and I, we used that all throughout the rig to constantly, you know, and we would change, um, the perception. So if you were in one room, we would of course affect it so that it was small and, and, you know, then you would have it in the hallways and then you would have it on, you know, when you would pull away from the rig and you would hear announcements. So it was, there were like those kinds of elements we really worked together with. Like, um, I'm just talking about the, the combination of effects and dialogue for Wiley and me, but, um, the pelican scene comes to mind for me, which was so expensive. Right. So this this was this was after the first kind of the the test that goes bad. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. Right. And then the pelican, um, who has you know gotten oil all over, comes in the comes into the bridge and makes a, t a terrible flapping mess all over everything. Yes. Right. So that was a very expensive CGI scene. And every time it played, they didn't really, you know, it just wasn't playing right. Nobody was, no, nah, it's not there. It's not there quite. So I sat in with the, uh, with our Foley editor and Wiley had done some wonderful sounds for it. Those wet, you know, oily <laughs> wings. I mean, mm -hmm. he really had, you know, he's a genius in the Foley stage. He really comes up with 
very unique things. And working with Gary Hackard is, you know, he's a, a master too. So the two of them go in there and cook up in their laboratory, all kinds of stuff. And um, so they had this and we went, we just dug through it. But I realized the element that was really missing from this pelican was the vocals that made you because um, nobody was feeling anything for this pelican, right? We were like, why are we not um, uh, connecting to this pelican? So I I did a lot of, uh, not a lot, but I I got a horse delivering a colt. You're talking, you're talking about, you're talking about pelican vocals. No, I'm talking about using other animal vocals because the pelican doesn't make any sound apparently. Right, but, the, it, but you're talking about you're trying. You're, that's what you're faking. You're trying to make. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Because because it, it's a CG pelican and it's not yeah. really landing emotionally until <laughs> right. you put some distressed vocals in there to kind of. Yeah, right. so we helped that, and we eliminated a lot of of the. You know, that was the thing is that there were a lot of these wing flaps and things. So we started pulling out. I started pulling out the sounds from that mm -hmm. and only putting in, you know, kind of the choice bits. And then we reconstructed that. So that, that scene actually ended up playing quite well once we got that, but it was, it was sort of, you know, creating life out of that CGI Pelican, you know, which is. It's so funny that you say that because of course, now that, now that you say that, I think about it, you know, uh, uh, if I thought about it for two seconds, of course, you can't take a live pelican and cover it with oil and throw it into a set and make it flap around because that's <laughs> that's a horrible thing to do. So of course it was a CG, but you know you just don't think. I mean, it's 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 a testament to the, the you know the the magic that you guys were able to pull off. That I didn't even notice that that scene was a difficult thing to pull off. You know. Yeah, it was it was and it was so expensive. <laughs> You know, you can imagine. So they were like, this thing's got to work. You know, it's not coming out. We got to make this thing work. That so we did. But I mean, there. so basically there's so many collaborative things that we end up doing. Yeah. It's, it's really not a line drawn, you know. Of course. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, you know, about the quality of the, of the production tracks. Because as you described that, you know, building the rig on a parking lot next to the abandoned Six Flags. And, you know, and obviously you're not five miles out at, at Ocean. So I'm sure that there were airplanes going overhead. So these were not, you know, these were not sound tight environments by, by any stretch. And obviously uh, lots of pyrotechnics going off. Yep. And, yeah. and, and, you know, machinery and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, was this a pretty heavy ADR film? Did you have to revoice a lot of stuff in, in post-production? Well, it's interesting because poor David Wyman, he, you know, he's our production mixer. I think he actually lost a, a mic melted on him because he got it too really? close to the fire. Wow. But, oh, it's, it's, look at Pete is one of those directors that is like another actor in the film. So he is constantly talking, not constantly, but he talks to the directors to the actors. Oh, I see. So, yeah. So he's giving direction to the actors while the camera's rolling during the middle of it. Cause he is an actor himself. So he, that he, he knows how to, he, he knows how to talk to them. Yeah. And he th changes lines and gives them new lines. And I mean, it's kind of brilliant when you really listen to what he does. It's, um, he, he's very involved in the scene and, at times, sometimes he would throw something. And he'd be like, what was that? You know, and that was to get the actor, kind of to jolt the actor. To give him a startle. Yeah. Right. So, but having said all that. That makes your production you know, tracks a little bit of a mess, doesn't it? 
Oh my gosh, it's a total mess. And, <laughs> and, and, and he also is somebody that doesn't say, okay, cut, take two, right? It's just keep rolling. All right, you come on in here. You look like you and say this, you know, and he, so the whole take goes on and on and on. So you have this and, massive amount of material that comes in. Right. And it's never, re the, the same word is often never repeated and it's often never repeated in the same way. So um, it was very tricky production to cut. But having said all that, Pete hates ADR. So, <laughs> so, so, you're, you're, so you, you, you earn your pay when you're working on a Pete Bird movie, don't you? Oh my God, there is no, oh, let's, mm, there's some noise on it. I mean, first of all, Wiley and I really talked about this and, and it was really Wiley's idea to make it more of a documentary feel. So he, because it was messy, it, it lent itself to this and it was fortunately, you know, that was the road we were taking, but it was a very, uh, we made it messy. So, you know, like the helicopter scene, when they first land and get on the rig and they land on the heliport, he had the helicopter going the whole time. And then we did a we did a take where or he did a take where the the helicopter was off, and they did their lines. But because there are there were three actors in there, and there were two guys that were not actors, right? Mm -hmm. So the actors all knew to shout really loud when you know sure <laughs> to pretend like the helicopter was still on. But the other guys would the other talk. guys they didn't know that yeah yeah so they were just talking like this so. <laughs> You know, and of course they were on camera and it, it was just, and Pete was like, no, I don't want any ADR and you'd have to, please, can we do this? So I finally started to get words in, you know, I would sneak a word here or there because you would want to hear, you, that's sort of how you cut with Pete. It's like, okay, what's the important word here? Not every word is important, mm -hmm. right? What are you trying, what's the story? What's the meaning of this scene? What are you trying to get out? What are we trying to say? Well, it's actually, it's actually really interesting that you say that because one of the things that, that um, I think I found kind of frustrating about the movie at the, at the beginning, you, you talked a lot of, <clears throat> you talked previously about having a, a dictionary and, and the, 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 the jargon that these guys on the oil rig use. I think it took me several minutes to kind of just let go of the fact that I was not going to understand what the <laughs> hell these guys were talking about, you know, cause there's, they're throwing around all this jargon and I get that something not good is happening, but I have no idea what they're, you know, so, but it was interesting cause I kind of had to go through a journey with it. And at some point I just realized like, it's not that important that I understand everything that's happening, you know, or that I understand every word that's being said. No, exactly. Because it's so like a BOP. It's like the blowout preventer. What is that again? I mean, you know, we tried telling it, and you know, from the way the little girl says, and this is a big guy preventer. No, it's a blowout <laughs> preventer. And then we actually explain it. We put a text yeah. up that says a blowout preventer is yeah. this. And we use crayons. I mean, we did. And honestly, it was it was about a month before I even knew what an annular was and what right. a pressure test is. And it, it was such a different, um, so that we all sort of did the same thing you did. We all said, okay, look, it needs to be incredibly factual and correct. So I used all of those people that I talked to you about. There were probably four of them that were almost on speed dials for me. I would call up and say, be, and also because of the way this film was constructed and the way we were telling the film, it would change pretty dramatically. So 
a lot of the stuff that we created was we would we would recut freshly for that scene not the stuff that was on camera obviously but the explanation of it and and everything had to be reworked the backgrounds the the um the dialogue was a constant flux mm. in in this process but um now what I was going to say, we, we basically did kind of give up on it. And I would call these guys and say, okay, look, does this make sense to you? <laughs> this is sort of what we're trying. We're trying to say this. How would you say it in oilies? Right. right. And then oh, they would so go, funny. okay, you would say it like this. You cannot say that. And then I would say, can we say this? No, that cannot be done. So there was a lot of, uh, of with these guys. Thank God they were just brilliant. And some, you know, they, they left to all parts of the, because they're still working in the business. So sure. one guy would be in the Congo. You know, I'll call wow. you tonight when I can get a radio phone, you know, and another wow. guy was on Myanmar, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. So tell me a little bit about the post-production process. Was it, did you guys go through multiple test screenings and tent mixes or no. was it, was it a fast mix? How, how did the whole thing kind of play out? It was so fits and starts. Um, uh, basically, it was a very small crew and they had because they posted it in New York, there was a whole added element, a whole added cost to it that made it very, you know, it was like, okay, now we have to have a three-week hiatus. Everybody has to go home. So we're like, uh, okay. And then we'd come back. So it was because of this short, um, it actually ended up being quite long, the schedule, but it was in fits and starts. Mm. And we actually never pre-dubbed. What does that mean? I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around that. Was it you just like you just started mixing and you had everything up and you just kind of sorted your way through it? Well, this it's I've never done this before. But what happened was we got there and they said, "Okay, we're going to do a temp mix in four weeks or something." I was like, "What?" So, and at that point, I just showed up and the film was in total chop suey. Like everything that had mm -hmm. been cut, now forget it, throw it out, recut it, and. So we, we did that and we put together as fast as we could. Wiley and I showed up and we're like, okay, let's just do this. You did this. And we were just working as fast as we possibly could. Dror Mohor, Mohar was our sound designer on the, on location in New York. Hmm. And he started early and he was great because he worked with Pete and Colby, Pete and Pete is the director and Colby Parker uh, is the picture editor mm -hmm, mm -hmm. along with Gabe and that he would feed them, you know, they would get a scene because it's all CGI, right? So they'd get this scene and then it was like, Oh, now we need to put some sound to this because it doesn't really make sense. And then drawer would do a lot of that, do a lot of the um, early design and then the continued design. And we ended up, you know, I'll get to that in a minute, but basically what we did. So we had this film that we just sort of put together as fast as we could and we did this temp dub. And the temp dub. And usually for people who may not be familiar, you do a temp, you do a temp dub because you need to go out and you do a, you need to do a screening or a, a studio screening. screening or a test screening or whatever, but you can't just, you, you have to put the, you have to kind of put the, the sound together in a rough fashion. Exactly. And the dialogue was a real rough fashion. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything was in this part. And then we had Mike Presswood Smith who came 
who I think he sat in London for like three days with the dialogue tracks and tried to make some sense out of it. I mean, I was still cutting and he was ahead of me. You know, so he, how did you guys end up in London and New, I presume New York was a, that was a tax credit issue? Exactly. Uh -huh. Well, he, Mike was in London and then coming to New York to do the mix. But we ended up, um, you know, I would cut a reel and send it to him and say, see what you can do because we're going to have no time to pre-dub, which we didn't. So the entire time, uh, the dialogue was a virtual mix, meaning, you know, it was never into any pre-dub, which is very common now. Yeah. But we had no, we hadn't, we, we had no stems. Uh, so we just basically had this, this virtual mix that would go. So, so the dialogue we, just stayed in Pro Tools the whole time? The whole time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And Drawer, because he had so many elements, actually did mix downs um, of groups for him. And then we brought those to the stage and then, uh, you know, wrangled that into this, to this mix. So it was a Mr. Toad's wild ride. I mean, <laughs> and, and, you know, the whole time, Oh, a new VFX. It's like, wow, there's a whole nother explosion. Right. So, you know, it was, um, excuse me, there, it was a con, there was always some new VFX coming up our way. So yeah, so we didn't pre-dub. That's Ever. amazing. That's amazing. So then we ended up, we came back and we kept cutting and cutting and cutting and editing and adding. And Wiley went back and did some work with Harry Cohen, who is a brilliant sound designer. He's a great sound designer. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. And Harry did a lot of the fire that just ate through the film and into the theater. You know, he was just yeah, it's very it powerful. Amazing. Very powerful. There's some there's some really wonderful sound design moments that I was particularly struck by. You know, there are a lot of shots. There are a lot of shots um, throughout the film, but especially in the first third, that kind of that kind of follow the pipeline down to the yeah. seabed floor, and you kind of get the sense almost that you 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 know every, everybody presumably who's watching the movie knows a little bit about what happened they know that something bad is going to happen but you kind of there's all these wonderful sound design elements that make the that that ocean floor and that environment down there almost seem like it's like it's pulsing and it's it's a live thing down there Yeah, well, we wanted to create vertigo. Mm -hmm. So as you went down the pipe, every time you got to one of the rings, you'd hear, Whoa. you know, it was just like right. this element. And people did feel, they felt vertigo when they watched that because we really wanted people to understand that this was 5,000 feet down into the ocean bed. And uh, the yeah, the pressure is just uh, immense, I'm sure. And that was possibly, that was the first note I got from Pete when I met with him down in Louisiana. He said, I want this to be a monster in the bottom of the house trying to break out. <laughs> a monster in the basement is how we put it. Right. Oh, that's out. great. That's great. So, and Wiley kind of steered him in another way. He wanted it to be loud and you know, scary down there. And Wiley said, you know, it was actually really kind of brilliant. He said, you need to create this quiet 
scary kind of monster that, you know, it's that Alfred Hitchcock, you know, you don't know what's happening behind the door. You kind of walk towards it and it's scary. It's anticipation. Yeah. You know what's coming. Yeah. So Wiley really convinced him to do it in another way, which also allowed us to create these two different worlds because that's really what it was. There was the below the ocean, which actually was quite calm. It wasn't even the night that of the deep water of the explosion. It was a very calm night. Interesting. And the upper part was the action, you know, cre- creative and excitable civilization that was going on there. And then below was like you, you were saying, it was this sort of big, bigger than everybody element and we were able to do that through um you know reverbs and sounds and and uh we used the rov voices down there then they got more and more distorted as the rov which is the remote mm-hmm. operated vehicle that that checks out <coughs> the pipe you know the guys were actually up on the rig and they were looking down and mm. the sending this this rov down up and down to see it but because we were going with the rov perspective we decided to make that this distorted hard to hear what was that you know the part mm. got mm-hmm. down so you started to feel like you were really lost down there and you were alone well i think you know a lot of people um you know when you say Academy Award nomination for sound and Deepwater Horizon, it, it's, 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 you, you kind of, your mind immediately goes to, you know, the explosion and the fire and all the, the chaos of the, the night when it all, you know, came down and every, all the horrible things that happened on, on the rig, which is obviously, I mean, it's a, it's a tour de force of, of sound design and editorial, but I, I gotta say like one of my favorite sequences in the film from a sound storytelling perspective was what happened r- shortly after that is there's that wonderful sequence when the guys and women are coming off of the rig and I guess BP is putting them up at a hotel Oh and, yeah! and they're arriving at the hotel. Um, and some of them are getting kind of angrily confronted by families who don't have any news about whether their loved ones have survived. And they're obviously having a very emotional moment because they're seeing their loved ones for the first time. And I, I wanted to, you know, just to kind of describe a little bit about the, the use of sound and in that particular sequence, and and um, it was I, I thought it was just beautiful storytelling. What's your name, sir? Mike Williams. You just need to get some rest, and when you do, after you're done, you can talk to me. Hey, hey, hey. You on the rig? Yes, sir. My son, get off the rig with you. Rig? Did he get off the rig? I don't know what Where is my son? Yeah, and you know, that was Dror Mohar when he 
um, he worked with and Colby Parker, the picture editor. They kind of came up with this in a very it's ironic, but it kind of it came up in a very quick way. Like they needed to get it to a temp dub, and they said, "What if we just did this, this, and that?" Mm. And it ended up being kind of magic, you know, something like that, where it happens, and um, you know, the the little bit of where you move it out of frame you know, maybe three frames when the guy starts screaming and then Mm -hmm. go to silence and then taking, you know, making sure that Pete really wanted not to have voices there. Um, And, and what is there? There's a lot of reverb on. Yeah. Right. And, and it, it really was from Mark's perspective because he was really having a PTSD moment. That's right. And it was, we really want, we went in and out of that moment. Like, when we when he first comes out and all the reporters are out there and it was we did a very very uh, stylized moment there with all the voices and used different voices it wasn't even the reporter voices it was other voices and then he as soon as he hits the door it becomes real you have this guy going oh hi mister what's your name you know the guy from BP and then he's there trying to re- deal with this reality. And then he walks over and the father of the son, you know, c- confronts him. And that's when he starts to go into a PTSD moment again and goes back into his sort of dream scene, you know, the, um, uh, 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 you know, out-of-body Yeah, the, you, you called it POV, and that's exactly right. It, to me, it was just a great use of of sound design and the soundtrack to put you in the headspace of the, of the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause those things can be tricky. You know, you don't want to hear people. And then the, the, the actual, this was a case very specifically of hearing what you wanted to hear. Mm. So right. you heard my son from the woman and then you didn't really understand what she said after that. And then you heard a few things from the father and then you heard, um, a couple of things from the BP, you know, make sure, you know, you don't talk to anybody, which right. we wanted to get. <clears throat> that's right. That's right. Right. So there were elements of that. And then when he, when his family came, we were very careful about what we heard on that because he was still having that. So a lot of that dialogue we just took out. Amazing. And then, and, and so that wasn't, that, that, that sequence wasn't designed or shot that way. That was actually something that you guys put together in post-production. Yeah, it was definitely that. That's really interesting. And it turned out to be one of my favorite moments in the film. Oh, isn't that great? I love that because I think you're right. Like people think, oh, explosions, fire, you know, I mean, those are, that's the great part of it. And boy, I'll tell you, um, they really do make (laughs) all that work. And the visual effects were amazing. Those guys were really fantastic with what they did. But um, it's often, to me, the smaller moments that it's the humanity is what it is. Because this story really is about that. It's not about an oil explosion. It's really about the humanity yeah. and the people on it. So that was something we never, ever wanted to lose sight of. Well, fantastic. Renee, I can't think of a better way to wrap it up than, than with what you just said. So <laughs> uh, congratulations again on your Academy Award nomination. Thank you. Um, I'm looking forward to, uh, to seeing all of you guys in your, your tuxes and gowns in a couple of weeks at the show. 
Have you, have you got your have you got yeah. your have you got your uh, your outfit picked out yet? You know, I'm going to the Baptist tomorrow, and I actually just picked it out today. So, <laughs> not that I'm a last minute person, but I am. I mean, it was like, oh God, that no. I mean, that's like a whole other element that's that's complicated. I know, but I know, yeah, right. I just got it. So, well, that's great. Renee Tondelli, thank you so much for joining us. This has been another episode of our uh, Conversations with Sound Artists podcast, um, talking about Deepwater Horizon. Renee, thanks again. Thank you, Glenn.